uh, the friend of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, the one who wrote the Gospels, uh, written to uh, a group of some of the earliest Christians uh, in the Christian church. Now, uh, for those of you who are uh, rugby fans, uh, especially England rugby fans, you're going to be watching the clock. I'm very impressed that you're here. You clearly have great faith in my ability to preach short um, and to land this plane before quarter past. Um, for those of you, I didn't see any Irish or Scottish rugby fans in here. Ah, okay, yes, true. Um, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to let you in on the score. Um, but um, there's prayer for the Scottish afterwards. Um, one of the things that watching a little bit of rug, little bit of rugby recently has set me thinking, particularly actually watching my son who started playing adult rugby for the first time, which is, as a parent, I have to tell you, a great mixture of emotions along the lines of feeling very proud and utterly terrified. But one of the things it's taken me back to is my own very brief and rather ignominious rugby playing career. Um, I went to a school where football was banned. I, I don't just mean they didn't play it, it was properly banned. You weren't allowed a football in school. It was that sort of school. Uh, we were reduced to playing football with a tennis ball uh, on what was not known as the, the playing uh, play, playground, but the the um, parade ground. So that tells you really all you need to know about my school. Um, so we were forced to play rugby. There was no choice about it. And um, I hated it. I hated everything about it. I hated the cold, the wet, uh, the mud, um, the contact, the ball, um, the yelling, everything really about it. I love it now to watch. Um, but somehow, bizarrely, ended up playing the position of hooker. Now, I know looking at my svelte slight frame now, that's hard to believe, but um, certainly aged 11, 12, 13, 14, I found myself in the middle of this seething mass of male bodies known as the scrum. That's the, you know, when they all come together and you, the, the one right in the middle is the hooker. And I had no idea what I was doing, but somehow I ended up playing for the B team. There was even a C and a D team, so that wasn't as bad as it sounds. And then one fateful day, I think it was the under 14, so I'd been doing it for a couple of years. One fateful day, the A team hooker was sick. And so I had to play for the A's. Now, I, you've already worked out by now, I went to one of those schools that prided itself on its rugby, was very good at rugby, played sort of nationally and all sorts of things. So I wandered on properly as a lamb to the slaughter. But I was on the team sheet. I'd been chosen. I, there was a little bit of me, that unreconstructed bit of me that was quite proud of this, stupidly not scared of this, walked on. And the first scrum, I experienced something I'd never experienced before. The gap between A and B team rugby was just astronomical. And the, 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 just the sheer force, the brute force. And don't forget, for those of you who are into, into your rugby, this is in the days before all those, you know, pesky rules about scrums and what you were allowed to do in them. So it was just bang. And the whole thing collapsed. And I ended up at the bottom of it. Um, and, and I did my back in. And actually, quite seriously, throughout the next 10 years, that was a real problem. I've never played rugby again. So here's the thing. I was on the team sheet. I was chosen for the team, but I clearly wasn't up to it. I mean, there's no way I should have been anywhere near that pitch for that game. And I failed. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't suddenly magically become a great rugby player. And being in the team didn't turn me into a great rugby player. It was simply a painful failure. I was trying to become somebody I wasn't, and I was singularly incapable of doing so. And the problem most of us have got, rightly actually, with religion is that religion does exactly that. It says, do you know what? You know, if you're good enough, you can get yourself on the team sheet. And if you're good enough, you can stay on the team sheet. And here's how you do it. 
Here's the list of do's and don'ts. Here's the lifestyle you need to lead. Here's the sort of praying you should be doing. Here's the number of times you, be, you should be going to church or temple or synagogue or mosque. Here's the amount of money you should be giving away. And if you keep it up, if you get better and better, you get to stay on the team. Mess it up and you're off the pitch. It's what we imagine religion is about. It's about becoming someone you're not. And over the last couple of weeks in the book of 1 John, what we found is that John has been driving a coach and horses through that understanding of what religion is meant to be, or at least, or actually, in fact, driving coach and horses through that idea of what the Christian faith actually is. That it's not about what I do in order to get God to love me. It's all about how I respond to the love of God that draws me into his family. And in fact, what we're going to find, but I'm going to steal it and use it this week as well, is that in just a few um, sentences' time, John is going to use a set of picture language that for us is far better than getting on a team if we're going to understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus. What you find at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is what he says about faith is, if you want to understand what it looks and feels like, it's like being adopted. It's like being adopted. Somebody comes along, let's imagine it's with a baby, a child who hasn't done anything to either deserve it or not deserve it, uh, and somebody says to them, I'm adopting you. At that point, that child is legally a member of that family. That's how it is. The, the papers are all signed, the judge presides, whatever, you're in. You are a member of that family. Actually, whether you're fit or not, whether you do things the same way or not, whether you want to or not, you're in. It's a gift, just given to you. But here's the question. Are you going to make the most of it? Are you going to live like it? Are you going to enter into what it looks and feels like to be a member of that family? Are you going to do things the way that family does things? Are you going to love just the way that you're being loved? Now, if you choose not to, it doesn't stop you being a member of the family but it means you're missing out on all the benefits of being adopted into that family. We're going to come back to it, but I just wanted to give you the headline. This is what John's talking about. What he's saying is, you think that religion is about what you do and the hope that God somehow will approve. And actually, John is spotting that even some of the people that call themselves followers of Jesus think that's the way it works. And if we're really honest, in our less good moments, we know that's the way we think it works. We're sure, actually, that this stuff about grace gets us so far, but when I've messed it up the tenth time, or when I'm that much older and should know better, or when I've done something truly horrific, actually that's when grace runs out, and it's all about staying on the team, being good enough. Now I've messed up enough. But John says, no. You are the daughter, the son of the Most High God. You're adopted into his family. Now, he says, live it out. Now, over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is that John is talking about this gift of the, the life of God's family. And it's a life that stretches from eternity to eternity, not just simply the life in our physical bodies, but a life that we get caught up into, which is the life of being in God's family, the life of knowing God. And last time, I was talking about the fact that one of the if you like, modern pictures we could imagine that uh, is of a ladder against a wall. And what religion does, what different worldviews do, what different ways of approaching life do, is they say, here's the ladder, here's the wall, and if you can just live this particular way, you're going to get to this prize the other side. 
So if your whole life is about career, that ladder is about your career. And if you climb up it well enough, you know, at some point you're going to reach that moment, that nirvana, which is fulfillment in your working life. Or it's going to be all about family. Or it's all going to be about status or about money or some religious ideal. And what John is writing about is that actually God in Jesus comes down the ladder to us, picks us up, and takes us to be with him. So far, so good. Except it sounds like, if you were listening well when Math did that reading, it sounds like, from verse 3 of chapter 2, like John loses his moorings. It sounds on the face of it like up till now, John's been walking this way, talking about God's grace, talking about God's love is for you. How are you going to respond to that love? It's not about what you do for God. It's not about obeying the rules. It's just grace. And then it's almost like he trips over his own feet in verse 3, turns around and starts walking totally the other other direction because he suddenly starts talking about the commandments. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The one who um, says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. That's pretty full on, isn't it? Are you a liar today? Have you done anything that reflects badly on God? Are you a liar? Do you love perfectly the way that God loves you? Do you love your family? Do you love your friends? Do you love your co-workers? Do you love your neighbors the way that God loves them? John seems to be implying that if you don't, you're a liar. Does that mean you're off the team? Does that mean you should be off the pitch? Does that mean you failed? Does that mean all this stuff about grace is simply in itself too good to be true. Well, you know I'm going to say no. And the reason I'm going to say no is because what John actually means is every single time that you and I mess up, and actually, to be fair, he's already said in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we are going to mess up. If anyone does sin, we have one who speaks in our defense. He knows that. He knows that we're messing up all the time. But he says... If and when you don't love the way that God loves, what it is is not that you've somehow failed and are off the team. And it's certainly not that you shouldn't have been on the team in the first place. It's that you're lying about who you are. You are telling a lie about who you are in God's family. It's a profoundly different way of thinking about sin and good behavior. It is drummed into us almost since the day we're born by the whole of our culture that sin and good behavior are all about brownie points and about sort of the opposite. You know, adding up, am I going to be better than I am worse? You know, I'm, often with the teenagers, I've done this thing where you get a big piece of paper and you draw a sort of um, a big sort of office block or tower block and you say, right, tell me the people in life who you know have um, behaved the very best. And we end up with sort of Mother Teresa and, um, I don't know, Um, Martin Luther King and all sorts of people up the top, Mandela. And then down the bottom you say, well, who are the people who have been worst in history? With Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao and Hitler. And then I say to them, I'm going to draw a line across the middle. Where would you put yourself? It's an interesting thought experiment just for a moment. I'm not going to ask you. But where would you put you? My experience is that most of us put ourselves somewhere around the middle. Interesting psychological question as to whether you put yourself slightly better than average or slightly worse. And some of us at our worst and darkest moments, actually, without I'm not being um, just humorous about this, some of us at our worst moments put ourselves somewhere down the bottom because we feel so terrible about ourselves. And there are a few individuals who put themselves right up the top. But most of us, somewhere around the middle. Plenty of people who are better than me, plenty of people, thankfully, that are worse than me. 
And John says, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong. This isn't about adding up good and bad. This isn't about saying, can I manage to just get over the line, make God love me? What he's saying is, you are, when you're a follower of Jesus, a son, a daughter of the Most High God. You've been adopted into his family. So become who you are. Not become somebody you aren't, not try and pretend your way into that team, but become who you are. Live out that life that is yours. Live out the life of the family you belong to. Uh, at this now fabled school that I was at, we had a French teacher called Monsieur Hatton, probably Aton, I don't know. And he was utterly terrifying. The, the rumor was that he'd been a paratrooper during the Second World War and then a monk Probably neither of those things were true, but he was the sort of guy around whom these sort of mystical myths used to perpetrate. I remember getting lines, a hundred lines in French, because I glanced at the clock at one point during the lesson. These things go deep. I'm sorry, can I work this through with you? Um, a little bit of group therapy. But he was renowned that if you walk down the corridor with your bag over your shoulder, sort of slung over your shoulder like this, because it was sort of easier to carry that way, as he walked past you, he would push the bag off your shoulder and he would say, in this school, we do not. Sorry, it's terrible French cod accent. We don't do that. And everything in you wanted to go, well, actually, clearly we do. But none of us had enough of a death wish to say that. But his point was, if you're a member of this school, that's not what you do. It's just not done. And what you find in the New Testament is that time and again, this language that we feel quite troubling, actually, which is all about this is how you should live, obey follow the, the commands, we hear as, because otherwise you're off the team. Whereas the way it's being said is, no, 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 no. Tell the truth about who you are. You are God's daughter, God's son. You are adopted into his family. So why on earth wouldn't you want to live out the family likeness? And that family likeness is described as love. Verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Actually, that's the next step in this conversation, which is to say, well, it's all very well being told. All you've got to do is love. All you need is love, all of that. The problem is there's lots of different ways of thinking about love. There's the free love of the 1960s and 1970s. There's the tough love of a particular brand of parenting that was trendy once upon a time. There's the self-love of a sort of therapeutic revolution. There's lots of different ways of loving. But what John says is if you want to know what this family likeness looks like, if you want to live out the truth of who you are, simply walk the way Jesus walked. Love the way Jesus loved. Why? Well, because Jesus was God come to love us. Jesus was God come to walk with us, to talk with us, to be alongside us. So if you want to know what that family love of God looks like, look at the way Jesus lived. Listen to the things that Jesus said. Work out the people that Jesus spent his time with. And what you find is that Jesus spent time, yes, with his closest and best friends, but he also spent his time with the last, the least, and the lost. That Jesus spent his time with people that nobody else would be seen dead with that Jesus' love was pretty harsh, actually, on hypocrites and pretty challenging for those who'd got themselves locked in a pattern of life that cut them off from God. It wasn't a soft, sort of being run over, doormat sort of love, nor was it a sort of weak, just fluffy, fairly unattractive love. This was the love of God. 
And actually, if there was one thing that I would love to say to any person coming to faith for the first time, that is the same as I would say to any person who's been a follower of Jesus for 30 or 40 years, it's that if you do nothing else in your day-by-day life alongside keeping a, a, a life of prayer alive, it's dive into the Gospels. Just read the life of Jesus. It doesn't matter how many times you do it, there's always more and more to discover of who this person Jesus was and is. Listen to the things he said. That's the love of God in action. See the things he did. That's God's love in action. See the people he spent time with. That's how God's love looks. And then, here, verse 6, that if you claim to live in him, you simply work that out by walking the way Jesus walked. And as he says in verse 7, this isn't a new thing. He says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This business of loving the way God loves actually starts in Genesis and works its way all the way through the Bible. And yet it is new, as he says in verse 8, because now this truth is seen in Jesus. From Genesis through to the end of the Old Testament, actually the love of God is seen in his actions through the prophets and the priests and the kings, through the gift of the temple, the gift of the Ten Commandments. But all the time there's this sense of the haziness of God being at a distance, catching glimpses of God, moments when God's uh, uh, character and love are seen. But all the time there's this promise. One day, one day someone is going to come in whom and on whom the Spirit of God is in such a way that this will be God with you, Emmanuel. You won't have to just read a list of commands to know what God's love is like. You won't have to sort of just toe the line with a bunch of religious um, uh, actions to know what God's love is like. You're going to be able to meet him. You're going to be able to be loved by him. You're going to be able to be his friend. In other words, this is the most ancient of all commands to love as God loves. But it's brand new because in Jesus we see and know and receive the love of God in a way that has never been done before. In its truth is seen in Jesus, and now you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And then he returns to that same theme, verse 9 to 11, that actually if we are going to live out the family likeness, not live out a lie, the place it has to start is with the family. The glory of God's church is that we're all so different. The glory of the people of Jesus is that as you look around even just this room, you're going to see people you would never dream of spending time with in any other context. People you'd never even meet, let alone count as your brother or your sister. And then even more than that, as you look beyond the, the walls of this particular church and you start to see Christians in other parts of the country or other styles of worship or other parts of the world, people with whom you might on one level violently disagree on all sorts of things from politics to, to gender and sexuality to how you use your money to how you spend your time to whether you think climate change is real or not. Actually, some stuff that goes pretty deep in all of us. You're still going to be able to look them in the eye and say, you are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. And let's face it, if there is one way in our broken culture, in our broken society, that the church can be different, it is learning how to love across difference. Isn't it? I mean, it's easy to love people that we agree with. And it's easy to love people that, with whom we only disagree on the peripheral stuff. How do you love people 
with whom you have such a visceral, passionate, deep-seated anger. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. If you want to see the church of God be radically different from the world around it, this is how. Loving across difference. Loving in the midst even of anger. Loving because we belong to the same family. Loving because we've been adopted, not because we deserved it, but because we're loved. And if all of that feels, gosh, quite heavy, if all of that feels a really big mountain to climb, what I love is that John finishes this little bit of his letter with some lovely encouragement. Verse 12 through to verse 14. Written, it has to be said, clearly within a culture 2,000 years ago where it was perfectly acceptable and understood to speak to simply fathers and sons without feeling like they were excluding everybody. I want you to hear it as fathers, mothers, all people. But what he says is, you older folk that he calls the fathers, so fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, all of us who are a little bit older, I want to encourage you because you've known him, Jesus, who is from the beginning. And I write to you younger ones because actually you've already overcome evil as you walk with him. In other words, we need to encourage one another that actually in all the mess and the muddle of our lives, we are Jesus' friends. In all the mess and muddle of our lives, there are plenty of ways in which our lives are different from what they were a year ago or 10 years ago. We need to celebrate the ways in which God is at work in us. See what he's doing. The very fact that you've decided to be out of bed on a Sunday morning, here in church, in worship, that's a big deal. Celebrate it. Enjoy the fact that God has called you here. But don't just stop at that. In a moment, we're going to be coming to communion. Communion is that most beautiful of visual aids where we come with empty hands and we receive. It's a sacrament of grace. It's a gift of something. And as we receive, what we're receiving is a reminder that it's not what we bring to God, it's what he brings to us. This is the family meal. You're invited to be part of it. And as we're part of it, as we receive from him in bread and wine, the call is then to live out the truth of who you are. Don't lie this week. Don't lie, tell the truth. Therefore, if you're going to tell the truth, live a life that is shaped by the family likeness of walking the love of Jesus. You're not going to do it on your own. That's the work of God's Spirit in you. You're not going to do it on your own. We're there to encourage one another. You're not going to do it on your own because you walk with him who gave everything for us. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing as we come towards communion. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this astonishing fact that this isn't a team we have to achieve for. This isn't a thing we can fail at. This is a family we're adopted into. And as you've made us, your daughters, your sons, help us this week by the power of your Spirit and in your grace to live out the truth of who we are to love one another as you have loved us, to love all those whom you have made, to care for this beautiful world you've given us as a gift, and that others might see the love of Jesus in us and through us now and always.